0: Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and this is the Empire and Deep State series that I am co hosting with friends of the show, Aaron Good and Seamus McGuinness. They are from the American Exception podcast, and the series that we're doing together is based on the book American Exception Empire and the Deep State by none other than Aaron Good, political scientist and historian and we are continuing the history of the us empire and deep state and we're focused right now on the john f kennedy administration this is the second part of the history of the jfk administration technically this is uh you know i guess you could say part 19 in the series but don't worry that we're not really going with those numbers anymore this is part 2 of jfk because we decided if we're going through the history it makes much more sense to do each administration in several parts rather than just doing the arbitrary number of the series so in the previous first part of the jfk history we talked about the we talked about jfk's life and his r- rather privileged upbringing we talked about how he became influenced by third world national liberation struggles including in algeria in congo and in southeast asia with the end of french colonialism in French Indochina and Southeast Asia and we talked about Bay of Pigs and the CIA and the response of Kennedy to that of course big Bay of Pigs is going to be something that comes back again and again cuz we're talking about the deep state and the empire US imperialism and Bay of Pigs plays a an outsized role in that and in this part we're going to be continuing the discussion of JFK's foreign policy and his move away from a much more imperialist and hawkish foreign policy toward an attempt to break with the uh, imperialist foreign policy orthodoxy in Washington. And uh, in the previous part, we talked about the influence of the Rockefeller oligarchs and their network of political operatives in the JFK administration and this kind of political tug of war that was going on inside JFK's administration. So, uh, Aaron, there are numerous crises that really marked JFK's administration. Another one that was important was Laos, or you know, people often say Laos. Uh, technically, it's actually Lao. The S is there because of the French uh, influence, French colonialism. But anyway, the point is, Lao or Laos. How did that country play uh, a key role in the early years of the JFK administration?
1: Well, on the day before the inauguration of John Kennedy, he met with outgoing president Dwight Eisenhower. And Eisenhower didn't really have much to say about Vietnam, but he had more to say about Laos. uh, Or as Kennedy, if you hear those uh, press conferences he did, he would call it Laos. Situation in Laos. So that was how they used to pronounce it. Typically in the U.S. they say Laos. So I, I go with I go with Laos. Ben I could very well be correct. I assume he is about the indigenous pronunciation of it. Um, but Te- this, technically, this... the
0: name of the country is Lao. But because you know, the French, they always add like the silent S's at the end of things, even though they don't pronounce it. So it's technically the Democratic People's Republic of Lao.
1: Yeah, the French probably did a number there as well. The capital is, as you'll see, um, we have a map that we'll include here. So as you can see, Laos is this landlocked country in Southeast Asia. It was part of French Indochina, and it borders Vietnam and Cambodia. So it would have been North Vietnam and South Vietnam at that time, and Cambodia to the south. Laos is the landlocked one, but it does have a sort of artery uh, to the ocean, which is the Mekong River. And the French did a number on probably not just the name of the country, but also the name of the capital city, which I have heard pronounced Vinh Ching but it's spelled in a French way, as you can see, and it's, I, I don't know what the local pronunciation would be. I've heard Vin Ching before, so let's take it as, at that. But Eisen, Kennedy was told that uh, this would be a real looming uh, problem for his administration right away uh, by Eisenhower himself, and if, the, if it were to fall, the U.S. would have to write off the whole area. Uh, according to Eisenhower, a neutral solution was impossible, That it would he said it would be fatal for us to permit communists to insert themselves into the Laotian government. OK, so if you were going to have a neutral government, you'd have some communists, some uh, other nas- right wing nationalists and royalists, et cetera, et cetera, something like that. But they, a, a coalition, a neutral coalition government is was, according to Eisenhower, impossible and that you couldn't have the communists in because the communists cannot be allowed in or they will just take over everything. This is sort of the conventional wisdom of this time period. Now, JFK had a press conference on this. In his first press conference, he said Laos should be independent and free of domination by either side. But uh, there was a problem with this in that at the time that JFK is taking office, there's a a situation in Laos that is uh, not good for the from the perspective of somebody who wanted them not to be communist or to be neutral. Um, and that is that the Pathet Lao, which were the uh, communists uh, uh, in the country, they held this uh, strategically important plane of jars area. And they had been supplemented by, they were led by this guy named uh, General Fumi. And they were assisted by a Soviet airlift that was coming out of North Vietnam, which was supplying them and so when Kennedy takes office, this is uh, that you can see on a map that there are a number of areas that are controlled by communists uh, at this point. And uh, the forces of this general Fumi guy were very dispersed uh, and not, and they were kind of reeling, uh, not really uh, very, Fumi was not a very cracked uh, crack military leader at all. So Kennedy sets up this Laos task force Uh, And they have a planning meeting on February 7, 1961. And they come up with a plan that the King of Laos would declare neutrality. General Fumi would capture the plane of Jars to have more negotiating power. And then CETO, which is the Southeast Asian version of NATO, S-E-A-A-T-O, would carry out supporting moves, uh, including deployment of a U.S. military unit to Thailand. Now they go, they take this, they they use they have this plan because there's a a broad military consensus that the communists needed to be stopped before a neutral Laos could exist. So they had the idea, okay, neutralize the communists first, and then we can have organize a neutral Laos. Otherwise, you would have the problem of the communists of Laos taking control of the Ho Chi, Minh, Ho Chi Minh Trail, which goes through Laos and was a way for North Vietnam to supply South Vietnamese, you know. Uh, communists, freedom fighters, nationalists, people who are against the U.S. regime there, right? Uh, potentially, this could be really disastrous for the U.S. position in South Vietnam. So, Laos has big implications for the U.S. Uh, garrison state that they're building, basically, in South Vietnam. So, uh, th- and if they—if it fell, it would be bad for Vietnam, Cambodia, and potentially even Thailand. Okay, so the plan called for de- de- defeating the, Pia- the path at Lao and then declaring Laos neutral. JFK gets told by his intelligence community that there's not going to be any problem with uh, FUMI's forces defeating the communists. Uh, this is based on this special national intelligence estimate, which was drawn largely from two army officers uh, with, who, who were not uh, giving good intelligence, essentially. So uh, I, I'm taking a lot of this chronology from John Newman's book, um, JFK in Vietnam, which is, has the distinction of being praised by Arthur Schlesinger, um, Oliver Stone, and William Colby, the head of the CIA and director of the Phoenix program. Okay, what a mix! Yeah, I mean it's really it's really something what Newman did with this book, and uh, Bill Colby. It's fascinating that he's uh, he figures in this story a little bit. But we'll come back to him in future episodes, I'm sure. But the, he it seems that Kennedy was manipulated to take this, to take the course of action that he took there. And the story is told by John Newman, where you had an optimistic estimate saying, it's looking good for our guy, General Fumi. He's going to win the day. And this was uh, created at a lower level of classification. But there were more, uh, there was another set of officers in the Army Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence with higher level of classification status. And they had intel that would refute the idea that 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 Fumi could win. They actually had a competing estimate that was at a higher level of classification that said there are big problems and it doesn't look like Fumi can actually take the communists. But at this meeting, uh, they were they had a plan that they were going to clear the room of these other officers so that they could actually tell the president about their intelligence estimate because it would they couldn't do it among people who had a lower level of classification but uh, somehow the plan gets thwarted by the special national intelligence estimates uh, main drafter who denied their request to clear the room of lower security clearance people so they had a plan like okay we're gonna actually give the president the good intelligence tell him this this isn't gonna work we just need to get these guys out of the room but the guy running the show was like no i'm not going to allow that so as a result uh, the president is not given this information. This seems like a ridiculous way to run things. Like, The, the end result is the president doesn't get this information. CIA publishes the estimate in the original form uh, where, they, that where, they say, where they argue that with very limited uh, for North Vietnamese forces in Laos, Fumi will be able to take the plane of jars in just a few weeks. Okay, JFK approves it, and he doesn't know that there's any dissent about it in the intelligence community. It's just, he, he's been in office not very long at all. I mean, um, this is in February, so he's been in about a month. And uh, so he was given this 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 plan to do it uh, and have U.S. military troops there. But he JFK excludes the provision that called for sending troops to uh, Thailand. So there weren't, he didn't want to actually send, he, he went along with some of their general proposals and thought Fumi had a good chance, but he didn't want to put commit US forces to this. He wanted to sit back and let Fumi take care of this. Um but as a result there were no forces when uh the plant when Fumi started doing bad. So within 3 weeks of this uh, adoption, the Pathet Lao actually consolidate their hold on the planet of Jars. And this so it's the the reports that Kennedy had gotten were very bad. Luckily, he just said he didn't take their advice to also just include some troops nearby in case things go badly because if he had they would have been called into action and you would have had a potentially hot war breaking out now um it, so i i have a picture i have a couple pictures here uh one of them is the plane of jars itself okay so this is worth seeing because you see the plate of jars and uh, it, sometimes it'll be shown juxtaposed with like pictures of bombing craters, because later the U S would bomb this place so badly. The reason it's called the plane of jars is it's this like Neolithic heritage site, basically, where there are these, uh all of these jars of um that were made during this time period. They don't even really understand what they're for. They're just there built by these ancient peoples. And it happens to be kind of a pathway down to the, further south into Laos and towards Vietnam. So it's a very strategically important place. And you can see in maps how the Soviets were sending people into Laos, uh, a combination of like a Soviet North Vietnamese effort to help the path Lao, And this was uh, helping them uh, at the time to route uh, General Fumi's forces. Now, at the time you get, uh, Kennedy's getting this advice from people once things go south, uh, from people like Admiral Harry Felt, who says, uh, about this, he gives a very dire warning to Kennedy. It needs to be repeated again and again that the only way to save Laos is by successful military action. So, the advice Kennedy is getting is first, he's told that everything is great and that Fumi will be able to do well and route the communists, and then you can organize neutrality. Then it's a disaster, and it needs to be said, Oh, you you must send in the military uh, and do this. Because the the March 6th offensive that they launched, the communists, destroys much of Fumi's forces. Um, Roger Hilsman in the State Department says FUMI's troops basically broke and ran. Uh, they fell back beyond the crossroads, opening up, up approaches to Vien Ching, uh, Luang Ribang, which is another strategically important area, and to Mekong Valley in South Vietnam. So it was a it went very badly early on and against what
2: the intelligence
1: community was saying.
2: So just for a little bit of context, because what's nice about doing a series like this is we get to go through so many parts that you can kind of link it all together, and and this is very much an ongoing story, not just in terms of the U.S. going abroad, but there's the same people that keep cropping up. So you have somebody like Wild Bill Donovan that ends up the ambassador to Thailand uh, in in 1953. John Purifoy comes from Guatemala, which we talked about last time, ends up in in Thailand as well, running those operations, and the Thai paramilitary police unit, and and Peter Del Scott has. Um, of course, done great work on this in drugs, oil and war, um, or the the Thai police unit called Peru um, is sponsored by Bill Donovan and ends up running operations in conjunction with the Royal Lao Army, who, which is the, the paramilitary and counterinsurgency operation in, in Laos uh, or Lao. Um, and the, that combination of units are funded by Eisenhower and then by the Kennedy administration, You know, as Aaron said, you know, to some extent, we can't tell exactly where Kennedy uh, might have fallen on it. uh, If he had the full picture, let's say, um, in the same way that we see with Cuba. But essentially, the way this plays out is that this Thai operation is sort of a spiritual successor to the KMT. And so we talked about the Nationalist Chinese and the World Anti-Communist League being sort of the birthplace of Golden Triangle heroin smuggling. Uh, and the way that you know, essentially the CIA station would pay their operatives in in heroin and in opioids or opium instead of, you know, just paying them outright. Um, the heroin culture there within the the intelligence community moves to Thailand and laos and um, and ends up being a, a major base, which is why they're so invested partially in upholding anti-communism in in Thailand and Laos because you have all this money that you need to send to all of your operations all around the region. So I think that's a big part of their investment uh, is that there's an understanding that the uh, essentially US-backed heroin cartel uh, in, in East Asia has to have a, a central point. Uh, and as the KMT has sort of fallen out of favor as time has gone on, um, you, need a, you need an answer or, or a secondary option. And I think that the Thai and, and Laos example um, becomes a heart for that and be, is largely responsible for, until Afghanistan in the 80s, for the proliferation of heroin around the world. So I, I think that's kind of a broader part of this, this story that, um, that JFK is just sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, bumbling his way into in the same that way that we see with, with Indonesia, like we talked about, previously so as things start to deteriorate in in laos uh how does how does jfk respond
1: well i think that the drug business he was largely that you know if if you look at the doolittle report which you talked about in one of the previous episodes they talk about how these cia operations were set up and that nobody really had any control over them i think that this the the drug angle that we talk about is a good example of that and it predated the CIA with Operation Paper uh, having precursors to like the immediate post-war era when like Donovan and Heliwell uh, helped to re-establish this drug connection uh, in the, using KMT officers in this area. And after then, you have Operation Paper, which is approved and OPC is running these kinds of operations. But I have to believe that those kinds of operations were exactly the sorts of things that were kept on a very limited basis in terms of who was actually aware of the the drug angles and the amounts of the money that they had in these different conduits at the time, Uh, I I have to imagine that this was not it. So Laos, something that Kennedy would would be aware of or been able to get a handle on very easily, Um, but he would have, um, he did know that, that Southeast Asia was an area that the U.S. had you know, declared to be of enormous strategic importance going back for a while and so on. And so this becomes this area where the U.S. has already uh, and, and leaders across administrations have put forward, a, have, have professed their commitment to, you know, protecting, containing communism and not allowing it to spread in these areas. Uh, and so Kennedy is not, go, you know, it would be a disaster for Kennedy to um, preside over like a clear, you know, quote unquote, loss of these areas. So what they end up doing is uh, trying to salvage the situation here and keeping it from going full-on communist and causing real disaster for JFK politically. Um, they JFK thought that Fumi was totally incompetent, sort of a singularly incompetent um, person who, who couldn't really be leading this military effectively. And he decided rather than thinking that, okay, I need to really make sure we get involved here, uh, he decided it was even more important that, that Laos be neutral. Okay, be, this went beyond like an ideal that you would get once the communists were defeated and more like this is something we need to do as a way to make this, to defuse the situation. Um, the problem is that the bureaucracy, the national security bureaucracy, bureaucracy did not want this kind of political solution. The task force, the Laos task force wanted a military minimum position of the military being you know, stable, before they would start to negotiate this, uh, and there were pe- there were other voices that differed with some of the military prescriptions on this, like Chester Bowles, who's undersecretary of state, was saying eh, the military thing we may want to be careful with because it could bring the Chinese in. The joint tr- the joint chiefs, meanwhile, were very cavalier about it. All oh, they thought that oh no, we could send in troops to block the Chinese entry into the country. Um, and if if it came down to it, and they came in in force, like with Korea, well, we could just use nukes. So this was really their thinking at the time. They actually thought like, well, if we get overrun, we can just use the nuclear weapons. Okay, so this is this was the thinking of the U.S. at the time. We're thinking about now when we are talking about like, okay, what are the Russians going to do if X, Y, and Z happens and so on? It's like this is, you know, for the U.S., thinking about using nuclear weapons. I mean, they already wanted to use these just a few years earlier when the French were stuck in a position where they couldn't defend their, you know, remote Southeast Asian uh, post, outpost. And so they were like, well, maybe we should just send in the nukes. They're still thinking that way. Okay. Ted Sorensen, according to Ted Sorensen, JFK was determined not to stop, not to start negotiations on this neutrality process until the fighting had stopped. So he wanted a ceasefire. Um, and he, they felt that the communists needed to fear U.S. intervention in order to get them to the negotiating table. But JFK did not want to actually intervene militarily, but he was willing to at least move troops around for this so the laos task force comes up with this operation mill pond which is has like a 17 step escalation ladder moving of of token units and then potentially massive force if need be um but the, the laos task force was more interested in actually using the military this is the way it seems now in retrospect uh that they wanted to use the military more than jfk jfk wanted to Use this for more optics purposes, and he emphasized to them that I have not given the go signal on this in terms of like sending in the military, you know, to, to start fighting. He did put a small number of servicemen on the ground, Marines uh, who were helicopter guys, uh, but before they could even arrive on March 28th, uh, the the, the Pathet Lao launched a second offensive, and this is uh, this is frightening to the people who are planning this in the U.S. Um, so the State Department wanted a smaller force to use here, like a 26,000 force of half U.S. people, half Asian people. So the State Department was on was in favor of military intervention. Um, R- Rostow, who was the Deputy National Security Assistant, clashed with the Joint Chiefs, and he wanted a smaller intervention. The Joint Chiefs wanted a huge intervention. They were saying 60,000 soldiers, air cover, even nuclear weapons, or you shouldn't even go in. Okay, so basically all of the the main people that would be advising Kennedy, the Joint Chiefs, his National Security Advisor, and State Department, were all basically disagreeing on whether you should intervene or how big the intervention should be with a military intervention. Okay, but JFK didn't want to intervene militarily if he could avoid it. Oh, he eventually ends up with uh, staging a pr- having a press conference and coming up with a plan. So back d- during this time, the president would come out with, like, nice maps, you know, to, like, explain things. This is something I think they needed to bring back. They used to mock uh, Ross Perot for using charts and things like that. But, um, you know, I think that this is a bad form, and it would be better if presidents actually did explain things to people as though they were adults. Uh, but you don't get that as much these days. He has this press conference, and he, uh, they actually have a, available online. You can find the maps that he used as props for this. But you can see how the changes with the beginning of the Soviet airlift at the end of the Eisenhower administration changed the landscape in Laos. You have little encroachments beginning in August of 1960. Uh, a lot more areas are taken over by December 1960, which is, you know, have this lame duck presidency. Maybe this is part of the thinking on the part of the uh, Laotians and Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, and Soviets. Uh, and by the time Kennedy's giving his press conference, that second offensive attack has happened and they are uh, in danger of really taking over all of Laos. So, Kennedy is in a, a pickle and he wants to send a clear signal that the U.S. could potentially get involved here or, or that the U.S. is about to get involved here. So he sends three aircraft carriers with 1,400 Marines uh, to the area. 150 Marines are added to uh, a base in Thailand and Udorn, Thailand, and 26,000 are moved to, or sorry, 2,600 are moved to Okinawa and there's also plans drawn up for air support from the Philippines, supplemented with extra help coming over from the Atsugi Air Base in Japan, where Lee Harvey Oswald was famously stationed uh, earlier, um, or prior to this time period. I think he's probably in the Soviet Union now, or he's, he's just coming back. I got to look at the timeline, but regardless, we'll come back to that later. Um, you do end up with, finally, uh, a show of, or a show of goodwill or, or a ceasefire Uh, thanks to, well, after a fashion. So there's a US and British diplomatic plan for a peace conference, and it was starting to gain support between late March and the beginning of April. But on April 4, the Soviet Union kind of messes this up by adding an agreement on uh, basically starting the conference before the ceasefire. This is very worrisome from the Kennedy perspective. Uh, April 7, General Paul Harkins uh, is, He establishes a command in Okinawa, and he's ready to invade and kind of excited about it, as as military guys are. But Kennedy needs to uh, delay this, and he's delaying this because of something that's scheduled for, around the same time, Bay of Pigs' operation of April, scheduled to kick off uh, on April 17th. And this is wrapped up not that long after they fail, okay? This catastrophic failure. This is another case where JFK was told all this stuff by the military and CIA advisors that, oh, this, this we got this plan. Plan's going to work. It's going to be great. You're not going to have to introduce troops. Uh, you know It's going to be great. And of course, it fails spectacularly, and it later appears pretty clear that the, that Kennedy was misled about this and that the whole plan was to get him to commit troops militarily, okay which is worth thinking about as we look at how, what they were doing here. Okay. Now when they are trying to figure out what to do with this, you have some of the joint chiefs are really aggressive about this. Um, in particular, Admiral Art Burke. So um after the after April 20th and the news of the failure in the Bay of with the Bay of Pigs, uh the ceasefire had been stalled for a little while at that point. The Path at Lao had gained territory in Laos. JFK upgrades this U.S military planning group to uh, the, the level of a military assistance advisory group MAAG MAG. If you read Newman's book, he has a zillion acronyms, so it's a little tricky to keep track of them all. But he's a, milita- he's a military guy, a military intelligence person, so I, I get it. Um, and finally, on the 24th, so a few days after the Bay of Pigs debacle, um, the USSR agrees to a ceasefire. And on the 25th, the chief of the military assistance advisory group in Laos conveyed this desperate plea from Fumi, uh, the, the general on the US side there for, for the Laotians, uh, that either airstrikes or sending troops or else the communists are going to take over all the towns he was basically holding at that point. And there's an emergency meeting on the 26th and Admiral Burke is there and he's arguing for the um, he, the, what, he and other people are arguing for the Navy to pre-position a fleet there and that, that, that the decision for war was going to come and that, that they should pre-position the, the fleet. So Burke actually orders that uh, presumably before there's even authorization for it. The um, Joint Chiefs send out a worldwide general advisory to all military personnel that the situation in Laos was exceedingly grave and that Sink Pack, which is the commander-in-chief in the Pacific, Uh, needed to be ready this is just the the term for the people guys the the organization commanding the u.s military in the pacific right need to be ready to stop potential uh people's republic of china intervention which how how are you going to do that without a massive force or nuclear weapons considering the population of china is like you know 600 million or something at this point um are they're they're planning to strike north vietnam potentially even bases in people's republic of china if need be uh so there's more meetings more meetings on the 27th. They actually add people to the uh, crisis group. They add eight senators and seven uh, people who are in the house to the group. And the Joint Chiefs Chairman is this kind of lunatic named Lyman Limnitzer. He's actually not absent at this time. Uh, he's stationed elsewhere and Admiral Arleigh Burke stands in for him and he gives a briefing, a briefing. He says the U.S. would There are the choices he he came up with. The US would either lose Laos without a fight, or they'll be forced to fight a long war using nukes. Okay. This this, this is how he saw it in very dire terms. So he urges uh, the president to use CETO Plan Five. Big CETO force would be sent, which is the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, sent to Laos in South Vietnam, centered on the the Mekong River. And uh, he said, even then, he said, still, this is not enough uh, to avoid using nukes. Army and Marine guys said only 1,000 men a day could even be added if they wanted to start adding more people in. So they were saying, logistically, we can't actually add more than like 1,000 a day because of the logistical difficulties. And this was going to present the potential uh, pitfall of the president being there, with all these guys on an airstrip and debating whether or not to save them with nukes. It would be similar to like the d and Fu thing, where it's like, oh, my, these guys are in a terrible, impossible position. Should we use nuclear weapons? So Kennedy didn't want this. The Joint Chiefs at this time are not worried about war with the People's Republic of China. They made plans. They, they thought, well, China won't intervene, but if they did, we'll just do this. We'll seize fortified Hainan, which is that big island off the coast of Vietnam, the Chinese island, and we'll send 250 troops. 250,000 troops to South Vietnam we will launch operations in North Vietnam to stop the Chinese from potentially intervening there. And if need be, we'll just use nukes. So it's no problem at all. This is what they were telling Kennedy at the time about the Laos situation. Very early in his presidency. It could have spiraled into a catastrophic world war uh, based on what they were saying. Yeah, and there's
0: another very important character in this that we haven't mentioned yet. He is the hawkish vice president under JFK, who of course goes on to become president when JFK is assassinated, Lyndon Johnson. So what was Johnson's role? It's well known that he was much more hawkish than Kennedy. So was he siding with the military in this conflict?
1: Yes, Johnson was more more hawkish, and he was present at some of these meetings, which were a bit chaotic and disorganized. So people were putting out different ideas. And the general sense that people were getting was that Kennedy was not in favor of taking a bold military action now, especially after, you know, he had de- he had delayed making any decision based on the Bay of Pigs. And what happened with the Bay of Pigs was a disaster, but in a way it was perhaps helpful because it made Kennedy think really carefully about what he was getting into with Laos. LBJ intervenes as these Plans for, are being discussed by the Joint Chiefs people, uh, and Kennedy is not receiving them very well. Johnson sort of tries to save them and says offers them a chance to put their ideas into writing so that Kennedy would be able to evaluate them. And Burke, who is headed who is you know basically the guy representing the Joint Chiefs at this time because Lemnitzer is gone, he set, makes some of these statements about Laos. Okay, so I've got a quote here. If we do not fight in Laos, will we fight in Thailand, where the situation will be the same sometime in the future as it is now in Laos? Will we fight in Vietnam? Where will we fight? Where do we hold? Where do we draw the line? Okay, now this, of course, reminds me of, uh, you know, Robbie Martin's recent, uh, the, the old conversation that he had with Robert Kagan, where Kagan is like, ah, Obama says he won't use nukes in Ukraine. And I'm like, well, where will you use them in Poland or in Romania? I mean, where? Where do you want to use the nukes? Right, or I think it was it was Adam Kinsinger, Kinsinger, right? The uh,
0: the U.S. you know neoconservative Republican congressman. He's the one who said, "If we don't fight Russia there, we'll have to fight Russia here." So we're fighting Russia and Ukraine in order to not fight Russia here.
1: Right, because they they're gonna want to just climb on a bunch of uh, what amphibious characters and uh, carriers and land on the Jersey Shore or something. I don't know what the thinking is, but. Regardless, this is how these people think of these things. You so, guys haven't or, seen Red Dawn. Yeah, so that's, I mean, clear, that's always been the plan. A right. bunch
0: of plucky high school teenagers can take on the entire Red Army. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's weird fantasy fiction
0: from uh, the Reagan era. Um, so, well, can- you know, that, I mean, not to get on a long aside, they actually remade it, and I heard they remade it, and the enemy was supposed to be the Ch- the Chinese PLA but they realized that China has such a huge market that they couldn't show the, the film in China, obviously, if it's a bunch of you know white US teenagers taking up guerrilla warfare against the, the yellow hordes of the yellow peril of China. So in post, they just changed all of the Chinese uniforms and put the North Korean flag on.
1: Yeah, I there think I go. do recall that, that story, which is just amazing so it would be ridiculous if it was china when it's north korea then it's just another level um (laughs) tiny tiny country imagine north korea whose military budget is smaller than the
0: the new york police department budget invading the u.s okay anyway yeah long aside
1: (laughs) yeah well it gets people in the seats maybe i don't even think it did that well
0: um but it shows how this thinking hasn't really changed at all because it's useful for the empire
1: yeah yeah so Burke has the idea uh, that he's really motivated to get this plan into the president's hand. And he, he later described what happened. He said, I went back the same day, I wrote a memorandum to the president and you, you just don't send a memorandum over to the president, you take it over. And I got thrown out. The president said, this is settled. Okay, only really LBJ backed up Burke in this. Only, uh, he was the only person who was saying that like, oh, this Burke's spells, he's got the right idea. Okay. this and this is notable because, you know, uh, LBJ is a guy who is strange during the Vietnam War under Kennedy's presidency, but he kind of keeps a low profile, uh, even as he's later getting like secret briefings that Kennedy is not getting, which are actually closer to the truth than compared to what McNamara and Kennedy are getting. Um, LBJ is sort of seen as an ally of the military. And so he's, you know, he's there when they need him. And this is, of course, very dangerous for the president to have such a guy waiting in the wings there. Um, but so the, the way that it ends up, you know, the way that Kennedy ends up dealing with this is. It's, so he tells him, Burke, no, this isn't going to happen. This is settled. Uh, they they uh, need to deal with uh, the Laos position to to neutralize it. Basically, he's like, I I want to put these people in place. And so that we can at least have a a credible potential deterrent threat for the communists, and we can negotiate this neutralist government. And that's what they're ultimately able to do. And the Soviets do help in this regard. Admiral or uh, Avril Harriman is uh, also instrumental in helping to put Kennedy's plan in. But he is uh, able to uh, he has to overcome his vice president his Joint Chiefs of Staff, bad advice from intelligence people, even the State Department's wanting the, him to intervene. Thankfully, he holds off till after bad pigs and then is able to uh, essentially uh, use recent experiences to have even more power to say like, no, we're, we're going to work out a, a situation here. I don't want to go into a hot war based on bad you know, intelligence and planning.
0: So, what does the national security state take as the lesson from this affair? How do they respond to JFK and Johnson, and how does it? How do they change their strategy in the future? Because what we're showing here is that the national security state wants something, and they if they can't twist the arm of the president into doing it, they they try new tactics.
1: Yes, well, let me. I'll, I'll tell you what Kennedy thought, and then what they thought afterwards too. So, Kennedy, there's a few quotes about about this from him uh, in the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs and Laos Fiascos. And he tells Arthur Schlesinger, uh, the first advice I'm going to give my successor is to watch the generals and to avoid feeling that just because they were military men, their opinions on military matters were worth a damn. Okay. And then he later tells Ben Bradley, his, a friend of his and the guy at the Washington Post, uh, you always assume that the military and the intelligence people have some secret skill not available to ordinary mortals. Uh, and then later, Arthur Schlesinger tells David Talbot, you know, friend of uh, the show here. Uh, I think this was in the process of writing the book Brothers. But Schlesinger tells uh, Talbot that after the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy had contempt for the Joint Chiefs. He dismissed them as a bunch of old men. He thought Limnitzer was a, was a dope. Okay, so Kennedy is learning quickly that these guys are a problem. He fires. He ends up firing Alan Dulles and uh, Bissell and Cabell at the CIA. Um, he makes covert operations more in the control of the military. He also uh, replaces Linnitzer with uh, eventually with Maxwell Taylor. Uh, unfortunately, he sends Lindnitzer to Italy uh, to run NATO, which means Lemnitzer is this right-wing fascist guy, basically has a uh, gladio, a whole gladio apparatus that Kennedy probably doesn't even know exists uh, at his command. But Kennedy tries to deal with with these issues. Now, what did the, so on that side, this is, this is what they, what Kennedy learns, um, and for the national security state, they also adapt to this experience. So uh, Chester Bowles and Burke wanted to um, uh, essentially wrong, uh, put something, use this Laos experience to impact the Vietnam policy. So they set about writing a book for, or writing an annex to the Vietnam report. Um, there was a meeting that was to be on the 29th, two days after the 24, April 27th Laos meeting. On the 28th, the Pentagon adds this Laos annex to the report. And it went beyond, so they're, they're sort of dealing with these things contemporaneously. They're working on this Vietnam report, uh, and then but it's in the aftermath of Laos. So they're trying to figure out what to do with Vietnam. This has been going on for a while. The Laos situation unfolds the way that it does. And these military guys think, well, we need to think about this as we uh, work on Vietnam and try to get the policy we want in Vietnam. So they add this Laos annex and it went beyond what the original had requested in terms of the military. It actually said a major U S troop commitment, it called for a major troop commitment for training purposes. And then three days later they add a, uh, this is changed to an X to a, a call for unilateral intervention with combat troops. And this is, based, this is uh, the opening salvo, in a way, of a, a, a Joint Chiefs drive for Vietnam intervention, for US-Vietnam intervention. And it's born within hours of uh, the realization that JFK is not going to intervene in Laos, okay? Now, John Newman writes about all of this, this whole episode in um, JFK and Vietnam. And he wrote about the, after the fact, years afterwards, he added this, uh, and he's put this on his blog, Uh, He said, I I first wrote about this matter in my 1992 book, JFK in Vietnam, and although I did not say so specifically at the time, I was appalled and apprehensive about how JFK was given such a terrible estimate on the situation in Laos. Over the years that have passed since that book's initial appearance, I have often wondered if JFK was deliberately misled into order in order to draw him into a a full-scale intervention in Laos, which I think is what happened. And when they failed to do that, um, that's when they decided that they would y- try to use what they learned about Kennedy inter- and 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 factor that into how they would call for Vietnam plans to be executed. Okay, the guy that ends up inserting this language into the report is none other than uh, Ed, notorious covert operations man Edward Lansdale. Okay, now the significance of this is. We've talked a bit about how Kennedy's uh, White House was staffed. The civilian positions were filled largely with people that were, were connected to the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. OK, so it was very similar to what a Nelson Rockefeller presidency would have been in terms of personnel. You also had the CIA and Alan Dulles, who was dedicated to you know, Rockefeller's Council on Foreign Relations. He was the vice president and then the president. You know Sullivan Cromwell was a lawyer for Standard Oil and so on. Uh, he, he was essentially this guy running a big mafia kind of organization that was not really in line with what Kennedy had wanted. And he controlled the intelligence committee and was connected to these Rockefeller types who were also, you know, in the civilian part of his government. And on top of that, you had the military machine, which was, you know, the military industrial complex was created in, in part by based on the designs of these other uh people, these other establishment people in the United States who wanted to plan the Cold War and the post-war U.S. empire. Uh, Ed Lansdale is a guy who is connected to all of these forces. OK, he his patron in the national security state was Alan Dulles. And he he rose to uh, prominence in, in the U.S. national security state because as a, an intelligence officer in the Philippines, he was able to recover a whole lot of gold Uh, that had been hidden by the Japanese there. And this gold is used as a major slush fund for covert operations, Uh, even with help from like the Vatican, you know, uh, down the road. And it it goes to fund who knows what it funds. A lot of it goes to fund the LDP uh, in have to have this fund called the M fund that they can use as a slush fund to run their campaign, you know, their campaigns all the time. I mean, uh, Lansdale was just this operations guy and he was given... Uh under the, in the post-war era, after World War II, he's given a military rank. And Fletcher Proudy said that he had helped, you know, did this r- pretty routinely. He would give people military ranks. So he's first made a colonel in the U.S. military, even though he's like military intelligence, really a CIA guy He works with the CIA. his patron's island Dallas But he's a colonel. Uh, he's involved in the Philippines right after the war. He basically, not only did he recover that gold, but he helped select and shore up this puppet named Ramon magsaysay who ran the Philippines and he used all these grisly techniques against the uh this insurgency in the Philippines you know including that famous vampire uh, thing where they drain the blood out of some poor uh, fighter that they captured and they hang him upside down uh, so all the blood comes out of his neck and then th- the people think it's vampires so they flee the area right so that's the kind of things this guy does he was an advertising exec kind of a psycho but he's very reliable, according to Dulles, and he knows where a lot of, uh, you know, hidden sources of money are, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so there you you have this guy in this position who's really a, a part of the the nexus in the deep state between he's got a military rank, he's connected to Dulles in the intelligence world. Dulles is connected to these to the capitalist elite. The rock uh, the Rockefellers are also you know, and Rockefeller friendly people are also throughout the administration in positions, you know, they're part of the U.S. establishment. So Kennedy has uh, the, the U.S. empire, the structure of the U.S. empire kind of working against him. Lansdale also was the guy who oversaw passage to freedom. You know, he, he picked No Den Diem to be the puppet in South Vietnam. And he also arranged for that massive uh, terror campaign to scare people into fleeing into the south of Vietnam. Uh, he was the guy who ran Operation Mongoose uh, for the Kennedys. And later, he's the guy who sends Fletcher Prouty, who's played by Donald Sutherland and JFK. He sends him to Antarctica. Uh, so for, Prouty's out of town when Kennedy gets assassinated out of the country. Um, and he was later spotted by some people in Dealey Plaza. So very important figure to, under, to uh, try to get a handle on the deep state and the way that it works. Not that we know. And we don't, we don't. we probably only know the half of it about this guy.
2: So like Eisenhower warned Kennedy and, and was very aware of, Laos was going to become sort of a major crisis of, uh, of the initial months of his administration. Of course, they closed out issues like the Congo before he could even touch them. Um, but this was the first real crisis he had to face in a, in a long series of, uh, I guess, a, a quick succession of, um, of apocalyptic crises, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis, they had pigs. Um, and, and each of them is slowly turning his administration and the and the warhawks that, you know, are just inevitably surrounding him and that have uh, taken over the momentum of the government at this point and of the empire. um, he's turning them against them as he sort of shows resistance and some amount of uh, an independent streak, like we've talked about even uh, even prior in Vietnam. So now that he uh, obviously he has this past that we talked about last time. In Vietnam, and understanding that an entanglement there would uh, would never work out well for the French or for the U.S., um, and then again, he's run into this in Laos and realized that his own government is going to uh, to run counter to him. So, how does his experiences with uh, with the Laos policy inform uh, his treatment of Vietnam and of uh, of the ongoing operations there?
1: Well, the early part of Vietnam. As we said, the Laos issue is like the main crisis of Kennedy's early presidency. But he's also inherited the situation in Vietnam, where you have this uh, puppet guy put in in the years before and under the Eisenhower presidency, a Catholic Nodensien, Catholic like JFK, and uh, the US He's the U.S. is committed to uh, South Vietnam to, to holding helping South Vietnam, you know, uh, defeat communism in the country. Okay, this is the policy that Kennedy basically inherits. Uh, and is, is resigned to try to, you know, keep from derailing his presidency and so on. Uh, the, Newman, John Newman, divides up the Kennedy presidency into phases, and the early, um, one of these early phases is from May 61 through, through, through the rest of 1961. Okay, so the earliest part, he's not really concerned about it because Laos is a bigger issue, but in May, After, as soon as Laos gets resolved and through the rest of 61, he's dealing with this. And it's, this time period is bookended by two uh, NSAMs, National Security Action Memoranda, 52 and NSAM 11. Essentially, this time period is characterized by three issues in the situation in in Vietnam. The communists are doing well, the insurgency is doing well, and the the U.S. is committed to stopping it, but there is, Discord in Washington over how to go about this. Okay, NSAM 52 uh, commits the US to opposing communist domination of South Vietnam. So basically just restates the status quo ante. And it sends in uh, 400 special forces advisors to help with training of the South Vietnamese army. Okay, you have another one, uh, a a lesser one, a lesser NSAM, NSAM 80, which sends some Air Force, these were called uh, units. Uh, the first one was sent to South Vietnam, called the Jungle Gym Unit, just there to help the them have some sort of air force. by By May or in May, the U.S. military was already wanting troops, as we've just as we've talked about the Laos, the annex to the Laos report, or the the Laos annex that was added to the Vietnam report. Um, they're calling for troops to be added. By October, the civilian advisors in Kennedy's government were also calling for troops because of the situation not going very well. Uh, The result of this time period and this intense debate over Vietnam uh, that's unfolding uh, in the summer and fall of uh, 1961 is in SAM-11. Okay. So No Denziem, this guy who had been picked by Lansdale, we got a good picture of him with Lansdale, got a good picture of him with uh, Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles. Also, this regime has to be defended. And the way that uh, they're gonna, the way Kennedy's gonna do this is laid out in these National Security Action Memoranda, okay? They come out. And th- the reason, uh, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about INSTAM uh, 111, but I just want to talk about, for a second, about the sort of establishment uh, inertia, you know, or momentum for defending this this area. Uh, when the U.S. "quote unquote" lost China, it became this huge thing, especially with the media amping it up and the whole political class saying, "Oh, you've lost China to the Communists. We're losing. We're losing." But this had been an ongoing thing in China, like it had been decades uh, of them of the Communists fighting uh, a Western-backed, you know, Chiang Kai-shek regime, KMT, Jiang Jishi whatever you want to call him. Um, that's the probably more proper version of his name, called Chang in the West. And they were they were a, it was a corrupt. It, nationalist government supported by the U S and they eventually, once they're done with Japan, you know, once Japan has been defeated, it's only a few more years till the communists emerge victorious as was predicted by people who were smart and knew the situation there. But the way it gets put in the U S is, Oh, you've lost China. And then with Indochina, they put the same sort of stuff out. So there's this cartoon from her block, you know, the guy from Washington post and it's got a, uh, Uncle Sam there pointing to the Indochina problem and the Republicans who have been making hay over the loss of China, the quote, unquote, loss of China, you know, uh, who have been accusing people like Marshall, George Marshall and Dean Acheson of treason for losing losing China. Now there, th- this the cartoon was made under Eisenhower, and it's saying to Eisenhower, what are you going to do with Indochina? Of course, we know what they did. They wanted to intervene with nukes to save the French first. And then they set up a puppet government with a stolen election. They uh, they scuttled the Geneva Accords election that was supposed to happen, put in this puppet. And, you know, right after, it's also worth noting, I put this on the cover art of one of our recent podcast episodes, this 1946 Time Magazine picture of Sukarno. And it says underneath, President Sukarno of Indonesia. And he looks kind of angry. And uh, the the word president is actually in quotation marks. But that was in 1946, so why are they, why is the corporate media, the Henry Luce media, you know, this American Century guy, why is he putting Sukarno on the cover of Time Magazine in 1946, are Americans just that concerned about the world? Well, remember that these people knew about all the oil and gold that was in Indonesia. They knew it was a massive bonanza. They say uh, in the American Century essay, Henry Luce himself writes that like, there's a lot of money to be made in Asia, okay? So they've got uh, this Indonesia part factors into this whole story, and it's it's sort of taken. You put this out in the media and the political class enough, and it becomes common. It becomes common sense for everybody to think, oh yeah, the fate of whether Southeast Asia is communist or not is somehow very important to us, and it's something we should really be worried about. Okay, when when you stop and think about it, it's like it's across a whole huge ocean. They can't possibly threaten the United States, you know. Weren't there a lot of Westerners there before? Why were they there before? What were they doing? You know, oh, colonialism, making a lot of money over there. You know, is that what they're doing now? I mean, if you're going to be honest, yes, that's the plan. But like they, the way everything is framed, it's just this Cold War idiocy sort of prevails, and you can't attack it headlong. Um, And that that's the situation that Kennedy found himself in. Um, So this leads up to his re-upping uh, the policy in 1961 with NSAM 111. And this is issued on November 22nd, 1961, uh, which is, of course, the same day as his assassination. Uh, and it's what's notable about this is that uh, Kennedy rules out U.S. intervention. It, every argument that could have been put forward for intervention was put forward by people for putting U.S. soldiers there, and Kennedy always refused them, okay? Uh, He said that the battle, the situation was desperate with the battlefield. The top advisors agreed, all agreed that, oh, the fate of South Vietnam hangs in the balance. Vital U.S. interests in the region, the world are at stake. John Newman describes this as the major Vietnam decision of JFK's presidency. Okay, It, it unleashes a flood of advisors and helicopters and military equipment to the United States but it doesn't he doesn't send in the tr- the soldiers. See, he told Arthur Schlesinger at the time about why he wasn't sending in troops. He said the, the, the troops will march in, the bands will play, the crowds will cheer and in 4 days everyone will have forgotten. Then we'll, we then will be told we have to send in more troops. It's like taking a drink. The effect wears off and you have to take another. All right? This is what he told him, which is which was true, which is what happened to Johnson. Uh And Kennedy knew it at the time, okay? Uh, The problem was that it didn't really resolve the major issues, okay? Kennedy, this is what Newman writes about it. Kennedy turned down uh, combat troops not when the decision was clouded by ambiguities and contradictions in the reports from the battlefield, but when the battle was unequivocally desperate. When all concerned agreed that Vietnam's fate hung in the balance and when his principal advisors told him that vital U.S. interests in the region and the world were at stake. And Kennedy refused to send the ground troops in. Uh, he resisted the pressure for war, but he wasn't ready to accept defeat about it. All right. So this was the situation that he found himself in. It didn't resolve these other issues, which were the, the deeper issues. Kennedy's plan could not address them. The NSAM 11 couldn't address them. Why were the Viet Cong winning? Okay, why were the peasants helping the communists? Why was Diem not making the reforms that everybody thought he should make? When and how would the U.S. ever be able to leave? This was more just a holding pattern uh, for Kennedy. He didn't want to be the one who lost Vietnam, but he would not send in combat troops. And he never does, despite them asking him to do that repeatedly. That never happens. So he resisted the pressure uh, for war, but he was not ready to accept defeat Uh, and but people like Lansdale were uh, were maneuvering to uh, change the way that this war was going to play out. Yeah, well,
0: that's a really good note to conclude on. Um, I do have one final question that's related, but that, that actually sets the stage for the next part, part three of our discussion of JFK, and especially in terms of Vietnam and Southeast Asia policy. But before we conclude this episode, just because I think it's good to have Uh, a deeper economic understanding. We were talking as well um, before we recorded about the role of balance of payments and the kind of economic motivations behind some of these decisions that that Kennedy made. And in particular, uh, we know that um, after World War II in 1944, the Bretton Woods Conference, the US dollar becomes the global reserve currency and it's convertible to gold, $35 for one ounce of gold. And we know that the U.S., throughout this time period, with the Korean War and especially with the various wars in Southeast Asia, and especially after JFK is assassinated, the U.S. is depleting and depleting its gold reserves. Um, so what what role did economics play in the decision making? I think that's often ignored, the inc- the very important economic motivations behind the debate over Vietnam and Southeast Asia policy.
1: Right, and uh, this this is part of a longer story that I think is not often really told in the way that I tell it in American Exception, uh, but I, I, it was very illuminating for me to like sort of hash all this out. And I won't get into too much of what happens after Kennedy, and we'll save that until later, but we've already talked about some of these aspects of the U.S. economic order and the world, the international economic order that the U.S. establishes after World War II. Uh, and a problem for... The U.S. was the flow of dollars and the, the, you know, in the within SC68, they create basically the military industrial complex uh, and the idea that permanent war economy and the Iron Curtain is going to cut off the ability of the of Western Europe to trade with the Soviet Union and thereby lock them into economic unit, you know, cooperation with the United States and the U.S. with Marshall Plan funding and military spending is going to be generating enough money to keep this thing going in a particular way, okay? Doesn't doesn't that sound familiar? (laughs) Yeah. Except today today sans any kind of Marshall Plan. Yeah, yeah, or any real logic in terms of being able to persuade them that it's in their best interest to, you know, be cut off from the Soviet Union. But the U.S. is basically trying to re-engineer this now as we speak, and it's pretty amazing. But the problem with the plan was from the perspective of people who were more, Uh, conventionally minded about wanting to, or just were responsible about wanting to maintain the, the Bretton Woods system that the U.S. had a pretty good deal in, was that the U.S. couldn't really run huge deficits forever because it would drain the treasury of gold. It would damage the U.S. gold position. So this was one of the arguments that Kennedy put into why they couldn't send troops into Vietnam, that it would break the U.S. balance of payments position. Kennedy, during his presidency, actually had press conferences on this subject, talking about the balance of payments, if you can believe it. He wanted to bring it in order, and this was one of the thing, the arguments that he used. So I think that he did not want a military debacle because he he knew the horrors of war, and he didn't want to you know, have a catastrophe visited upon a lot of people in the world, uh, including potentially the U.S. or potentially start a nuclear war. He also had the argument of the fiscal responsibility of the United States, and he had some support from financial elites and so on to this end that that actually saw for, you know, conservative sort of capitalist reasons, he had some allies in the establishment who wanted to protect the U.S. balance of payments position. This is part of the reason why Eisenhower goes for nuclear weapons and covert operations uh, in the 1950s was because the military spending was getting out of control and it was wrecking the U.S. position. And so. There's kind of a tug of war between people uh, on this, on this issue. And it's just worth thinking about the fact that the collapse of Bretton Woods, if it were to happen, you know, the gold tether, I mean, what what Kennedy doesn't know and what most of the U.S. elites don't know, but what presumably people like Lansdale and Dulles know is that there are two major, major, major sources of gold that are like offline and basically out of the equation. Uh, but could, would be later and, and probably under U.S. control, which is the massive amount of gold recovered, Axis gold in Europe and the and in East Asia recovered after World War II, kept off the books, you know, who knows where, uh, some went to Marshall Funding and some went to the support the LDP, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also this, the world's biggest gold mine is in, is in, is in, is in, is in, is in uh, Southeast Asia. It's in West Papua, which is part of Indonesia which factors into this whole Vietnam story. So Kennedy is trying to control this balance of payments issue, trying to handle the gold position. There are things that he does not know about the international financial situation, which I think are kind of an unexplored angle to the way that this all played out. But the, 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 the key for what we're talking about now is, or the relevance, is that Kennedy at, is saying, we don't want to wreck the U.S. balance of payments position with the war in Vietnam. Which to me is just more evidence that suggests Kennedy never would have gone into Vietnam, and that uh, for no among other reasons that he didn't want to wreck the U.S. balance of payments position, he was specifically citing that as why not to do it. And when Johnson goes in, it, it does exactly that. And so uh, I think this is just another reason to believe that Kennedy wasn't going to go into Vietnam. Yeah,
0: I mean it, it's really incredible just imagining the possibility of a U.S. president today hosting a press conference warning that we can't have more war because it would empty the foreign reserves. I mean, now it's different because with the, no freely, such thing. yeah, I mean, the freely floating FIAT currency and, uh, backed by U S hegemony. I mean, it's very different, but it's just unimaginable today that a president would, would one, make an argument against more war and military escalation and two would do so arguing that we can't spend that money. So, uh, Instead, we only hear that excuse exclusively to argue against universal health care and education and social spending that help that actually helps people in any way. So that, that that's that's where we are. Yeah. But there's obviously this is still very early in the Kennedy administration. We have two more years to go. And I'm excited to to learn more about, uh, you know, what was going on behind the scenes leading up to the assassination, because. You know, people have a very facile understanding of what was going on in the Kennedy administration at the time. And clearly, we have so much evidence now showing that JFK was evolving a lot politically, especially on a lot of these questions about foreign policy. And that will bring us into part three. So um, I'm Ben Norton. I'm joined by Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis. They are the co-hosts of and producers of the American Exception podcast. And this series Empire and the Deep State is based on Aaron's book American Exception Empire and the Deep State. If you want to get early access to all of these episodes, go to patreon.com/americanexception. So, thanks a lot. Uh, we appreciate all the support and we'll see you all next time.